morning. I am Pastor Bob, and it's my joy to be able to share with you this morning from God's Word. I always appreciate to see expressed in the life of a Christian a desire to be in God's house. They tell us that the average across the board today of what is normal church attendance is twice a month. I know many of you are here every Sunday, and we appreciate that. I was visiting, Cindy and I were visiting with Mary Heller this week, and she's in the middle of cancer treatment and, and uh, been in and out of the hospital here a number of times in the last few weeks, and she told us she plans to be in church this morning, and she was going to make every effort to be here, and she's here, and we are thankful. And... Um, she said it took a lot of effort to get here and she might fall asleep. I told her I'd wake her up. Okay? So if we have to interrupt the message, that's what it's for. Good to see you here, Mary. Just a couple of um, notes from our trip to Swaziland. As you know, we got back a week ago yesterday and um, beginning to get my land legs back and time straightened out. But um, we had the privilege of attending graduation at Emmanuel Wesleyan Bible College. And one of the joys was to be there when Norman and um, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, but you can guess there. But uh, Norman. Norman was one of the students that graduated. He is uh, one of the students that we have had the privilege of sponsoring through our faith promise giving. You have had a part in this man's life. He's finished his three years of Bible college and is going to be pastoring. And uh, we just were able to uh, celebrate with him and his family and some from his church family there that were there to celebrate with him. Also, a couple months ago, I think it was in May or June, we had um, Mapile and Hannah Villacotti with us. And uh, they were sharing what God has put on their heart to go back to his hometown of Mabutfu. And um, uh, to, it's, a, it's a town that's kind of way out in the middle of nowhere. Um, not a lot to offer children growing up especially. And um, uh, he has a heart to go back there and to help children, young men, especially young boys, to find a way to make something of themselves and not waste their life in drugs and addictions. And um, so he has been given a piece of property, that property that is there with the fence uh, by the chief. And his dream and goal is to see a community center built there. We have begun through our faith promise giving, have begun to help support that work. And uh, it was just a joy to go and to listen again to, to Mopile's heart for this this place that was is his home, uh, his hometown, and uh, to hear what God is doing and how God is opening doors and some of the young men that have already given their heart to the Lord that he is now discipling. He drives at least twice a week, an hour each way, down to Mbutfu to minister. And you are having a part of that. 
And then we also stopped and visited an afternoon with the children's home uh, where our Penny March offering goes to support. It was fun to interact with the kids, to watch them play, to see the joy in their, their lives. I got to sit down and, and interview a couple of them and, and the, them expressing the difference that being at this children's home has made in their life. Um, just to be, each of them expressed the, you know, the thing about being here is I have something to eat every day. I can go to school. I have a uniform. I'm like other kids. And, and you have a part in that. And they express their thanks to you for what you are doing. All right, this morning, the title of our message is Unuseless Love. Now that seems like a uh, arrangement of words that at first doesn't quite make sense, but let's, we're going we're gonna to work through that this morning. Unuseless love. There is a Japanese word called chindogu, and it is a, a, a Japanese art form in which they make what they call unuseless inventions. There's creations of these things that seem on the face of it, when you first look at it, absurd. And, and as if, what in the world is this? But then when you look at it, you say, oh, okay, there's maybe a purpose here. And um, some of them are, are, are quite interesting. Like this one, if you're ever out and you need to brush your teeth, just pull this thing out of your pocket, a latex glove with, a, with a, a brush on the end of it, and you can brush your teeth anywhere that you are. Or if you're out and you're eating noodles and they're so hot, you can't hardly get them in your... Just turn that little fan on, cool your noodles right down, you won't burn your tongue. Or the clothes dryer is not working, and you have to get those clothes dry. Just put that rack up on the top of your car, drive around town for a little bit, and voila, your clothes are dry. You're struggling with your allergies, and you can't find that box of tissues. Well, you just strap that on your head, and there's toilet paper always available. You don't have to run around the house looking for it or blame your wife for hiding them. They're right there. Um, Many times you're out and when it's raining, you never seem to have an umbrella. Well, this will work if you're an executive type. Um, just open it up and there it is on the end of your tie. Or some of you uh, ladies maybe spend a lot of time doing lipstick in the morning and this could solve a lot of time issues. Put that on, wipe that thing off and you have a perfect set of lips. My favorite though is this little tot. You know, if you take this little guy, you put this onesie on, fill that bottle up with Mountain Dew, and the floor will be clean before you know what happened. Chindogu are inventions that seem at first to be useless but when you think about it, maybe that idea, some of them begin to take hold of you. Some of Jesus' sayings, when you first read them, shock you. 
some of them, as we think about it, they almost twist our thinking. And if we have no patience to spend some time digging into what is said, we just put them aside as useless just because it doesn't make sense to our thinking. But if we stop and allow these thoughts to marinate in our spirit uh, and the truth begin to sink in, there's some meaningful things that begin to emerge and can begin to convict our hearts. Consider a few classic lines that Jesus spoke. He said, I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I am going to the Father. Jesus said, you're going to do greater things than I have done. We read the scripture and think, what? He said, if you hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give your life for my sake, you will save it. He says, but if, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of hell's fires. F.F. Bruce, in his commentary, wrote this. For to us there are two kinds of hard sayings. Those, there are, are some which are hard to understand, and there are some which are only too easy to understand. When, saying of Je when sayings of Jesus which are hard in the former sense are explained, then they are likely to become hard in the latter sense. Mark Twain spoke for many when he said that the things in the Bible that bothered him were not those that he did not understand, but those that he did understand. This is particularly true of the sayings of Jesus. The better we understand them, the harder they are to appropriate into our life. There is one statement of Jesus's that is both hard to understand and even maybe harder to do. And maybe it almost rests at the top of the hard sayings of Jesus. We're going to read it this morning in its context. The last, the last sentence is, is, is what we're getting at, but we need to see the context of it. So in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said this, You have heard the law that says, Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say that he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. You are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven, God, is perfect. Now, at first reading, that seems almost irrational. It certainly seems impossible. Jesus had to be kidding. Does he mean what, we, what he says there, or, or, or does he mean something else? He can't possibly be thinking that we can achieve that kind of perfection. 
And so we're compelled to begin processing this and assume that Jesus simply wants us to try to be like God. And in the sense of trying, uh, that that exercise will somehow maybe keep us humble and point us on a direction and keep us within a moral framework. But that interpretation is, is foolishness. Because is God really saying that he wants us to mindlessly keep trying to do something that we will never ever be able to do? Is that what he's calling us to? To mindlessly try to do something that's impossible? But this command to be perfect as the Father is perfect doesn't just stand alone. It isn't just a command of one of ten, but it's in a, as we've already shown, it's in a context. There's a series of questions that help us to understand it and make sense of it and be able to apply it, most of all, to our lives. He says, if you love only those who love you, what reward is there in that? He said, if you just love people that love you, what reward is there in that? Even corrupt, robbing tax collectors in, in that society, the scum of the earth, are able to do that. And if you're kind only to your friends, how are you different than anybody else? Even those people that don't even know God can do that. And so Jesus sets those questions uh, as the framework to help us to begin to understand what he is saying when he says, be perfect. The meaning of the word perfect. What does that mean? What is Christ calling our, us as believers to do? Is it reasonable? Is it possible? Let's look at what I think are the qualities of perfect love that Jesus was inferring in the questions uh, that he shared with his disciples. The first thing we find is that perfect love is mature. Perfect love is mature. The word perfect in the Greek is the word teleos. Teleos. Teleos literally means that which is full grown full grown. It has reached its maturity. It is like taking a child and comparing it to a full grown adult. That full grown adult is teleost. The child is not. That child when he is grown up will be mature, fully grown. It could infer a student who is graduating at the end of many years of study and now he's graduating compared to a child that is starting kindergarten. That student is matured in the, in the process that he has been in. And so it is vital to note that in this context, the word perfect here is not saying that it's flawless, that you'll never make a mistake. You'll be perfect in that sense. But it is saying that you will fulfill that which for which you were created, that for which God has called you to. Tom Fitzgerald shares a story of some of his ministry. He said, after spending a weekend at a very moving religious rally, a student came to me with a re expressing a renewed sense of passion to be perfect in every aspect of his life. 
He said it became clear as I talked to him that the presenters, the preachers, uh, were very good at helping him to see uh, his, the, the need of perfection and, and calling him to perfection. And he was under conviction for not being perfect. Uh, but, as he, but as he talked to him, he began to see that, that he was not actually understanding this matter of perfection. He said, so I asked him, what are you doing to start this endeavor of being perfect? And the boy replied, well, I've stopped watching TV. I've torched my music that have been putting impure thoughts in my mind. I told my friends, the ones that tend to drag me down, that I'm not going to be hanging around them anymore. And he said, while those things might be good ideas, his response totally missed the point of perfection. In the biblical sense, perfection isn't about what you abstain from, what you avoid, as much as what you embrace and what you do. In other words, perfect love is not about what you don't do. Perfect love is about what you do, what you're actively, intentionally doing. What Jesus says is that perfect love has to do with how you proactively behave toward people that harm you, that disrespect you, that don't like you, that you don't like them. And so he said, I tried to explain this principle to him and it just didn't seem like it was getting through. So he said, I handed him a bottle of water. And I said, look at the ingredients. Tell me what is not in the water. And he looked at the bottle and turned it over and everything said zero, zero, zero. He said, I think I get it. When something is considered pure, it actually means it only has one ingredient. Jesus' call to perfect love is a call to one thing, to love like Jesus loved, to love others like he loved us. As I said, none of us are perfect in the sense that we will never make mistakes, that we will never have flaws that we have to ask forgiveness for. I don't know anyone that has achieved that level of perfection. But a believer is mature. He is perfect. When he or she acts graciously, gives generously, thinks compassionately, prays faithfully for that person that is hard to pray for. And in your life, you know who that is. Those ones that you just don't like. Those ones that maybe caused you pain. Can you love them like Jesus loved us? A second quality that's revealed through these questions is that Jesus expresses that perfect love is effective. Again, something is teleos or perfect when it's the purpose for which it was created is found. The purpose that was planned for it is accomplished. We are perfect when we realize the purpose that we were created for. How many of you ever had a screw loose? <laughs> it's not a trick question. I had a screw loose in my bathtub, the, the knob that hold the hot water on. You reach down there and it was all loose. I tried my finger to tighten it there in the shower and tightened it some so it wouldn't fall out. 
But what I needed was a screwdriver. Now I could have gone out and gone to the Lowe's and said, I need a screwdriver to tighten faucet screws. And found that one that was perfectly created. Bob, you could have helped me find that, right? <laughs> and, and, um, but I didn't. I went into the bedroom and, and, and got out my little multi-purpose knife and it has a screwdriver on it and fit it in there and twist that screw. Even though it wasn't made for bathroom faucet screws, I was able to put it in there and perfectly accomplish the task that I asked it to do in that moment. It was Telios. It was perfect. At the end of life's journey, many people look back over their life and they look with regret at knowing they did not accomplish the purpose that God created them for. They didn't fulfill the purpose that God even called them to. Some that have even responded to his offer of salvation still continue to do their own thing. Consider Paul's final moments. Paul was not a flawless man. There were things in his life, if you read the book of Acts, that, you know, were things that he had to work through. But this is what he said when he got to the end. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I have remained faithful. He echoes what Jesus did because if you look at Paul's life, Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Paul lived a life of great persecution. And it was his love that was demonstrated in the midst of it that over and over brought men and women to God. Finally, perfect love is remarkable. According to Jesus, all of us know something about ordinary love. That love that is expected. That love that comes easy. But extraordinary love is distinct and can only come from God. In this passage, he says, love your enemies. Pray for those that persecute you. I don't know about you, but I don't find that easy. There have some, been some times in my life where I have had to look at that passage and just say, is this real? Can I really act this way to these people that have treated me this way that I've had to experience this? It isn't easy, but God says it's possible. The word for love here has nothing to do with friendship. It has nothing to do with affection. It's not about that deep stirring in the pit of our being that just oozes towards the other person. The word for love here is agape. And agape is that unconquerable goodwill 
towards the other person that seeks their highest good no matter what they do or no matter what they say, no matter what they've done, I will still pray for their highest good. Jesus never asked us to love our enemies in the same way that you are to love your parents or you love your mate or you love your friends. Agape, this love, this perfect love, is a call to extend grace, to extend goodwill to people who don't deserve it. And in many cases, aren't even asking for it. I recently came face to face with someone that had done some pretty bad things. And in the course of the conversation, they were telling me what God was doing in their heart. And in my e human immediate response, I was like, they don't deserve that. They, they, they should have been punished. And God just kind of hit me over the head with the two before, and he says, but that is grace. That's the love of God. They don't deserve it. But God loves you and he loved me while we were sinners. While we were in rebellion against God, while we were yet sinners, Christ expressed his love by dying on the cross for you and me. And he says, be perfect as God is perfect. Love in spite of, not because. And as Christians, uh, we are over and over and over again going to be called upon to love in spite of and not because. Jesus said, it's easy to love your children. It's easy to love your wife. It's easy to love your friends. That's easy. But how does God's glorious face shine through you as a child of the Father out there in our day-to-day -day world. Perhaps what Jesus is saying in this passage is that people will never be more perfect when th than when they extend that agape love, loving in spite of, loving our enemies. When people look at you, do they recognize that you're a child of the Father? When they watch you live your life, do they recognize that you are God's kid? These little babies that were just up here, many times we look at them and say, oh, they look just like their mom. And the next one says, oh, no, they look just like their dad. And sometimes in little kids, we just don't know. But as they get older and older, we begin to say, oh, my goodness. They look just like their dad. I had the privilege of having Megan Goss to be able to go with me to Africa uh, a couple weeks ago. And uh, some of you that have been around here for a number of years remember Tim and Jen Goss. <clears throat> Tim and Jim, Megan's mom and dad, were very, very much a part of building this building. They spent days, weeks, hours, months, almost living in here. Megan was just a little baby, maybe two, three years old, running around in here when it was just cement. 
while mom and dad were working. I guess then I, I knew she was Tim and Jen's kid. She had blonde hair like mom and dad, but to say she just acted like them, I didn't. I, not, I don't have any recollection of that. But boy, oh boy, when Megan and on this trip and her and I would start talking and the expressions, the way she formed her questions and her words, I was just like I was looking at Tim. It was Tim's face. I mean, she was the spitting image of her father. I, I mean, it was, it was almost uncanny. She was her father's daughter because she acted, she talked, she expressed herself like her father did. We are perfect when we're most like our father. When we take the high road the way he did in relating to our enemies. He said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. Why? Because of the way you love. Because of the way that you love. And not the easy love that comes, oh yeah, I love them, they're so good to me. But when you love like your father who loved you while you were yet sinners and went to the extreme of dying for you to redeem you. So is it reasonable to expect people to love their enemies? Not at first glance, but it is what God calls us to do. And when we do it, it can change our world. Sergei Kordakov, the writer of the book, The Persecutor, he was, he was a KGB goon squad agent back in the 60s in Russia while they were still under the darkness of that dark time of communism. And the KGB would hunt down Christians and jail them and beat them, especially as they were worshiping in their underground churches. And he was a part of this elite squad that their whole purpose was to terrorize Christians. And those that were worshiping unsanctioned, uh, and they would they would go and they would find these meetings, they'd get tips and they would go in and break them up, beat up the, the, the participants and, and Sergi was, was, was a model communist. He was raised in an orphanage and raised under a communist ideology and teaching and he embraced it and he rose up through the ranks and now was the leader of this squad. And as Sergi's squad raided homes where they gathered, he began to notice something that bothered him. He had been told that really the only ones that subscribed to this religious stuff were the old people, the infirm, those that didn't have any other crutch to lean on. They would follow after religion. But as he began to go in and break up these prayer meetings and church services, he found that more and more and more they were young people. Young people professing their belief in Christ. And in the quiet moments as he observed, uh, he, he had this, this begrudging, begrudging admiration for their devotion. And he was intrigued by their poise and by, by their courage. And, and, and it confused him and his confusion expressed itself in anger and he became more and more aggressive. 
Sergi and his men stormed into a house full of young believers. And there they beat and mocked these believers that were praying to the God, their God. And the, the, the breeder, Sergi looked on approvingly as one of his biggest and strongest and most brutal goons, Victor, lifted a young woman up, literally lift her up, and just threw her against the wall and she collapsed. And as she crumbled to the ground, Sergi laughed and says, I bet uh, the ideas of God went flying out of your head with that one. But a few days later, they raided another house of praying believers and they found that same girl there again. And Sergi couldn't believe it. And his anger rose up and he himself took and beat her senseless. Back at the police station, he began to look through the names of these ones that had been arrested or at least beaten. And he saw the name of this girl, Natasha. And he just couldn't get her out of her, his mind and he was sure that she had learned her lesson. And as he investigated, he saw, found that her file said that she had once been a member of the Communist Youth League and he couldn't get out of his mind the question, what has happened to her that could cause her to leave communism and then become a believer in God? And he knew he had to find out more and so he brought her in for questioning. She was scared, but she was courageous. She answered the questions and she conveyed to him her forgiveness of what he had done and tried to share her faith in God. And Sergi dismissed her and told her he never wanted to see her again. But only a week later, they raided another home. And there they found Natasha praying a part of this meeting. And as the band of Sergi's angry police began to advance on these Christians, Victor, the one who had thrown her against the wall, jumped out and stood between this group of, uh, of, of KGB agents. And he waved a club and he said, I'm telling you, don't you dare touch her. No one touches her. She has something we don't have. And Sergi motioned for her to get out a side door. Sergi wrote, For one of the few times in my life I was deeply moved, Natasha did have something. She had been beaten horribly. She had been warned and threatened. She had gone through unbelievable suffering. But here she was again. Even tough Victor had been moved and recognized it. She had something we didn't have. And I wanted to run after her and ask, What is it? I wanted to talk to her, but she was gone. This, historic, this heroic Christian girl who had suffered so much at our hands somehow both touched and troubled me very much. It was the abnormal, otherworldly love of Natasha and her devotion to God that began to get a hold of Sergi's heart. It haunted him. He left this squad. He joined the Navy, became an officer, and... As he was thinking about all these things, he found himself off the, the west coast of Canada on a Russian ship when he decided to risk it all and jumped in the icy waters and swam to shore as he escaped from the hands of Russia. He knew that in the west, religion could be found 
And he began to seek out Christians, and the long and the short of it is that he became a Christian and began to preach and tell his story. Sergi writes in the closing lines of his book, And finally to Natasha, whom I beat terribly, who was willing to be beaten a third time for her faith, I want to say, Natasha, largely because of you, my life is now changed, and I am a fellow believer in Christ with you. I have a new life before me. God has forgiven me. I hope that you can also. Thank you, Natasha, wherever you are. I'll never, never forget you. Sergi, not long after that, was found with a gunshot wound to his head while he was out west. And many believe that it was a KGB that maybe took him out. No one ever solved that murder. But for him, he found Jesus because someone loved like Jesus. That is the most extreme and no, probably none of us will face that kind of persecution. And yet Natasha found it within herself to forgive and to continue to love and to continue to worship. Many of us allow things much smaller than that to cause us to pull back and say we can't love, it's impossible. If this kind of love for our enemies is not possible, then the story of Calvary would have been forgotten long ago, erased from history. What keeps Christianity alive is that ordinary believers begin to act like God in relationship to their enemies. The only people who could possibly love their enemies are those who have drunk deeply from the well of grace themselves and they know what it is to be forgiven. Perfect love is mature. Perfect love is effective. Perfect love is remarkable and it's unforgettable. If you love like Jesus... It may not turn that person like Sergi and he become a believer, but they'll not forget it. They'll remember it. And when God, the hound of heaven, is chasing them down, he'll remind them of that expression of love that you loved like Jesus. When we demonstrate love for our enemies, for those who are hard to love, we couldn't be more perfect we couldn't be more like Christ. Flawless? I know you're not flawless. You have faults. There are times you have to ask for forgiveness. But you can love perfectly as God does. Be perfect in love like your Heavenly Father. It is Christ living on us that makes it possible. It is dying to what we want. It is allowing ourselves to be alive in the Spirit. It is allowing Him to be Lord of every circumstance. As Jesus poses these questions to us this morning, what's your response? If you love like those who love you, you expect a reward? Tax collectors can do that. If you only greet your brothers, people that like you, what are you doing that anybody else wouldn't do? 
Pagans can do that. But I call you to be perfect. Perfect as your heavenly Father. I call you to love like Jesus loves. To do the impossible because God loves through you. I ask you this week that you will allow this to percolate in your mind and in your spirit. And then ask God, who is it that you are wanting me to love like Jesus? Who do I need to write a letter to? Who do I need to have a conversation with? Who do I need to go out of my way to be in their presence to express love? To do something that my own spirit says can't be done, but because of who you are, I know you love them just as much as me, and I'll let you love them through me. To you this morning, I said, say, go, be Christ. Be his hands, be his feet, be perfect. Go love like Jesus. Who will you let God love through you this week? Someone that maybe you've been putting it off, maybe you've been avoiding, maybe you just say, I love you as long as you never come in my face again. And God says, I want you to love them, find them. God sought you out. He came after you when you weren't looking for his love. And he says, I love you in spite of. Don't just love because. You're here with people this morning that you love because. Who do you need to love in spite of? That only the love of God, perfect love of God in your heart, that that can be expressed through your life. Will you stand with me? Father God, Oh, to love like you seems almost impossible sometimes. And many times we realize it's impossible because we've been trying to do it in our own power. We've been trying to look at people and feel the kind of love that maybe we have for our parents or loved ones. It's not there. But Lord, when we begin to look at people as people that you created that are lost, that are on their way to hell, that are as lost as we would be without God, Lord, help us to love them like you love them. I know that's hard, but I know you haven't called us to just be an easy thing. And so Lord, give us that, that strength to love. Give us that perspective that allows us to see people as you see them. That we will not just brush them aside. But may we leave within them when they look into our eyes, when they look at our face, may they see you. May they say, wow. They just act like their father. Help us to be that. To be those that love perfectly. We ask in your holy name, amen.